Welcome to another edition of the Business Acumen Show. I'm your host today, Greg Kalikas, sitting in for Roy Browning and Joe Manns. And today we have a very special episode of Business Acumen. We have our guest, the owner and founder of the DeJulius Group, Mr. John DeJulius. John, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to be here today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I guess the best place to start, I've always been curious how you got started um, doing what you're doing. Uh, you're heading up the customer service revolution, mm -hmm. which we'll get into as we go. Um, but what what ultimately led you down this path? And, and obviously the success has been just incredible, but what got you started? Um, you know, I, I actually love that question, and, and it's one that I love to share when I'm speaking to uh, youth and college students, only because I feel like uh, with all the, you know, Facebook, uh, you know, quick get rich schemes, everyone seems to think they have to have it figured out by, you know, 20. And all my primary careers were total accidents. <laughs> and I think it's unfair, you know, we're talking about we have, you know, college uh, um, children and, I think it's a lot of pressure on them to think that they should know what they want to do for the next 60 years. Sure. Right? And, you know, what I tell my kids is uh, just go out and do stuff. You know, dig ditches, be really good at it. And that it's not, um, it says more about your character, how good you are when you're doing a job of something you're not passionate about than, than when you are. It's easy to be, sure. you know, but when you're parking cars, digging ditches, and you do a great job of that, it opens up doors. So a long, long uh, prelude to your, to your question. Um, I was driving a truck for UPS after I graduated from college, and I wanted to be an entrepreneur, and, and that's the only thing I knew. I wanted to be, own my own business, and the only thing I loved was sports. But there's, you know, no money in sports if you're not a player, and I'm, I certainly wasn't a, a professional athlete. So I always thought I'd open a sporting goods store. That was the only two things I could see that would tie together, and fortunately that didn't work out. But I met my, uh, you know, eventual wife, and she was this great hairdresser. And uh, so I thought, and, and UPS, this is in the late 80s, was this phenomenal paying job for me. It was golden handcuffs. You know, I, I, when I graduated in the, in the late 80s, you know, the best offers I got out of college was, uh, uh, you know, $20,000. But UPS was making forty five as a driver, which, you know, was, I don't know what that would equate to today. That's but it's great money. It was great money. Um, but it was, I couldn't go anywhere else because I'd have to take a severe pay cut. But the other thing, I, I drove to work every day and then said 29 years and three days and I could retire and I wanted to get old as fast as I could <laughs> just because it wasn't what I, I wanted to do, right? Sure. So I met my wife. She was this great hairdresser. We uh, opened a small salon for her and hoping that it would take off and then I could quit this great paying job and go open my own business. And uh, we failed and we, you know, she was this great hairdresser, but, uh, you know, uh, the, the way we, we didn't know what we were into. So I literally jumped in the salon business. And if you would have asked me if I'd ever be in the salon business full time, I would have bet you a million dollars, no way. <laughs> uh, but I jumped in it. And between her, her technical uh, um, you know, expertise and my business acumen and customer service, we started killing it and growing, growing, growing. So there I just thought you know, we'd open a bunch of salons. And then as a result of our success and rapid growth, people started asking me to speak about customer service. And this is in the early 90s, and it was more of an ego thing. I was like, really? You know, you want to hear me speak? And so I would do it, and then everything led to more and more and more. 
until I eventually thought, you know, maybe I can dabble in a career at this, not thinking it would ever be what it is today. Which it's it's just become this uh, international powerhouse. And, and I mentioned before the interview that our owners, they've read your books, watched the videos, they preach the, the John DeJulius gospel to our company. Um, so obviously you've done some amazing things. You've worked with brands such as Lexus, Starbucks, Nordstrom, Panera, the list goes on and on. Um, while you were working with these companies, was there something, was there a common thread um, or a common factor that ultimately led to the organization's success that you saw? Uh, their success or the DeJulius groups? Their success. Yeah, yeah, we found, you know, so, so you know, when you rattle off some of our clients' names, no one bad hires us, which is like really crazy. <laughs> you, you know, the ones that you think need us, they don't think it's worth it. And the ones that are, you know, crazy good are, are so paranoid about not, you know, staying at that level. And so in the beginning, and still today, we learned more than we were probably teaching, you know, and we'd see that they all had a formula, a methodology. What we, had, uh, we didn't invent, but we uh, just codified as the Ten Commandments. And it, they all are constantly working at the same thing. Whether You know, the first thing was always a customer service vision statement. And that's who they'd attract and hire and retain employees based on. And then, you know, world-class internal culture. So there was just this methodology that we found that they all had in common. And once we codified it and, and, and wrote about it in the book, that became our methodology going forward for all our clients. So, John, one thing I was very curious about as we were preparing for this interview, um, how has customer service changed from the brick-and-mortar stores and, and today's online shopping? Obviously, customer service is customer service, but did you notice any drastic changes between customer service in the 90s to customer service today? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's crazy. I wouldn't, you know, obviously, e-tail, e-commerce um, is huge today, and, and, and brick and mortars have been uh, almost pronounced dead. But e-tail really showed us what great customer service is. I mean, you can't find a business that's easier to work with than Amazon, um, Zappos, you know, a lot of, and, and that, they didn't put the companies out of business. Poor customer service put the companies out of business. Uh, but what we are seeing is with the technology disruption that everyone's going through and artificial intelligence and chatbots, that the biggest disruptor today going forward is relationships. And the, um, the uh, illiterate of the business world today are the ones that are incapable of building relationships. And that's not taught in school and in businesses. And, you know, the, and that's not a generational thing either. You know, it's a touchscreen generation where we have our grandparents on Facebook. Mm. But that has, you know, our people skills are inherently uh, declining. And it's the businesses they're teaching their employees how to build genuine relationships and rapport and focus on other people are the ones that are going to benefit the most in the next decade. Wow. So along those lines, um, obviously you're the owner and founder and president of the DeJulius Group, but your official title is the Chief Revolution Officer. So let's go there. What do you mean by creating a customer service revolution? It's, it's something we take very seriously. It is um, a radical shift of the way employees and, and customers are treated, which permeates into people's personal lives at home in the community, which in turn help the businesses uh, you know, produce more brand loyalty, um, employee retention, and makes price irrelevant. 
So you're actually saying that when it comes to businesses, they can actually make price irrelevant to their customers? They can. And, and what I mean by that is it doesn't mean you can, we can double our fees or even raise our prices 25% tomorrow and not lose existing and potential customers. But what making price relevant does look like is based on the experience your brand consistently delivers, your customers have no idea what competition charges, right? So we're all price sensitive. Sure. And I've been, you know, an idiot that's driven three extra miles, say 50 cents on something, <laughs> not realizing I just lost in that exchange. Right. But we also, each of us as, you know, consumers and as business people have, have, have companies we do business with. And we're so loyal to them that, you know, sometimes, you know, when I'm telling you, you got to use such and such, you might say, well, what do they charge? And, and sometimes I don't know. And it's not because I can afford anything, right. but I'm not out comparing to see if they're five, ten cent percent less or more because the trust that they've given me, um, I know, you know, in a lot of cases, the cheaper um, you go, the more it'll cost you. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, paying a little bit more in the long run is, is probably the, you know, the most economical peace of mind thing. Wow. And one of the most uh, interesting facts or, or statements that I read as I was preparing for this interview, that it's ultimately management's fault um, when frontline employees treat customers bad. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Uh, you know, anything that happens, you know, where someone treats you bad always stems from how were they trained and uh, how good any company is at customer service really comes down to their service aptitude. And service aptitude is not innate. And this is really where a leadership paradigm shift has to happen. Everyone thinks customer service is common sense. None of us were born with it. I didn't have it. Um, you know, when, when, you know, none of us, you know, grew up driving Mercedes Benz when we turned 16, flying first class on a regular basis, staying at five-star resorts. But the moment we got a job, we were expected to give that type of experience. And that's unfair. I mean, we didn't have those type of experiences. So, you know, service aptitude comes from three primary places. Previous life experiences, which I just outlined. Previous work experiences, which, you know, everyone we're hiring, um, unless we have a direct pipeline to, you know, Ritz-Carlton employees or Disney employees, which no one does, your, your, your next generation of employees have worked somewhere else that probably wasn't world class. And they, you know, were probably trained to be suspicious and paranoid. And then we get them, and, and, and you know, we being anyone, and, uh, you know, they might be treating our platinum VIP client like they're trying to get away with something. It's not their fault. The only thing we can control, a company can control, is, is what we do with them after we hire them. And the service app, it can't be just operational product knowledge training. We have to train them on how to build rapport, how to make brilliant comebacks when we drop the ball, how to show empathy and compassion. Along those lines, when you're trying to build a world-class organization, what would you say is more important? Is it making the right hire or the training that you put into that hire? That's a great question. Um, the obvious answer is both, but if you you know it, it, when when someone pushes me and I got to give fifty one percent to one of those, I will take um, the uh, the training and culture we bring new employees into over hiring new employees. Now that doesn't mean anyone should start reactively hiring hiring anyone, but do we really think Disney found fifty thousand employees born to serve? Right? I don't think there's probably five hundred human beings born to serve. But what Disney says that I love, they say, we don't put our new people in, in Disney, we put Disney in our new people. Wow. Love that. 
Wow. Right? That's so, pretty powerful. So that, that's the training there. So I've heard you say world-class starts at the top. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So, you know, if you ask anyone what are world-class brands that they know of or experience, and not necessarily mom and pops, but they, you know, they would say Disney and Southwest and Virgin Airlines and Nordstrom's and Zappos and Amazon, um, you know, maybe Starbucks, Chick-fil-A. And, you know, then when you see why the person running their company, the person that founded their company is obsessed. Like, you can't read a, 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 an interview or watch a video, and the topic could be on anything, and they always bring it back to customer service. And you can also tell when companies are lousy, right? Um, Spirit Airlines is the worst, uh, you know, a, a, a airline in the U.S. You know how bad it is? You know how hard it is to be the worst airline? That's pretty tough. There's a lot of competition, yeah, right? So, but, but you can also tell why. I mean, their their founder is just you know, just has a horrible attitude about passengers and, you know, penalizes people. You know, there's a, you know, story that a Vietnam vet um, booked a, uh, a flight to go see his daughter and like a week later found out that he had esophagus cancer and he only had like, you know, a month to live Ugh. and they wouldn't refund his money because he should have bought insurance. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, so... One thing that I found very interesting, um, I read where you say companies need to stop creating policies and using the word policy when it comes to their customers and employees. But wouldn't that leave the door open for the customer or potentially the employee to take advantage of the company? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not about um, punishing 98% of, of the customers for what 2% might get away with. Policy is a, a, a very dangerous thing to say. Not have. It's okay to have it. I wouldn't call it policy, but, but there's two reasons. One, we've all been a customer where policy has been thrown in our face, and it, it ticks us off, right? We've been coming here for years. I know the owner. You know, We're personal friends, and I know you created policy to protect yourself from the masses. I'm not the masses. I'm John, right? <laughs> but worse, what policy does to an employee mindset Employees will never go against policy. And policy is black and white with walls and you get in trouble, you can get fired, which then strips them of common sense, creative innovations to solve a problem. And, you know, we've, we've done, you know, even my company 20 years ago ha has done, you know, stupid things because it was our policy. And, you know, I, 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 I trust my employees. I, I, I never, they'll never get in trouble for something they do. They'll get in trouble for something they don't do. Yep, I've heard that a few times. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite parts of your book is how you've helped companies create their never and their always list, which you would think would be common sense. But from my experience, I always see the never side of things. Yeah. I never see the always. How do you explain that? Yeah, so, you know, when you deal with world-class companies, you know there's certain things that would never happen or always happen. Would you ever expect to go to Disney and see a cast member on break chewing tobacco, spitting on the pavement? No, of course not. Would you ever expect to go to a Ritz-Carlton and ask an employee where the restroom is and they, you know, snap at you and say they work in housekeeping and storm away? No. So, you know, we create a, a real, help companies create a real simple list of nevers and always. Never point, always show. Um, never say no. Always focus on what you can do. Doesn't mean everything's a yes. Just don't say no. Sure. Um, my biggest pet peeve is never say no problem, right? Mm -hmm. uh, no problem's a big problem for two reasons. One, it's two negative words we shouldn't be using any. But um, if you ask me for more water, 
And I say, uh, no problem. That's implying to you it's, it's not inconvenient for me. Well, when we're serving others, it's not about my convenience, it's about yours. It's almost saying you're lucky I only have to go over there to get your water, otherwise we'd be having a big problem. <laughs> right? Instead, say, certainly, my pleasure, absolutely. A couple more, never overshare. Um, you know, just, just make it right. Just, you know, find a solution. Um, so it's, it's little low-hanging fruit. Never show frustration publicly. Um, you know, I want a bunch of ducks. Always be a duck. A duck is the most graceful, beautiful thing gliding across the water when no one sees or, or, or knows is it's paddling like hell underneath, <laughs> right? So, you know, it's a simple list of nevers and always that if you should deal with anyone from your brand, we would never do it this way. We'd always do it this way. You said today that we are living in a relationship economy. What does that mean to you? So, you know, as I said earlier, today's, you know, business illiterate is not the ones that can't read or write, but it's the ones that can't make meaningful relationships. And that is, uh, you know, at an all-time horrible low. And, you know, we're, we're um, a touchscreen generation and we communicate with people, you know, over devices. And we don't know how to build rapport. And, and when we do get in front of people, um, it could be about us, my flight, my son getting in trouble, my client. And so we have to help um, our employees create systems to build relationships where we focus on the other person for the whole time. And just because someone had a conversation with, with a customer, a neighbor who lives three doors down from them for 15 minutes doesn't mean you built a relationship, right? It could have been all about me when I was talking. So I, we always talk about if you just had a conversation with someone and you can, you know, the way you can prove to me that you built a relationship is you should know two or more things that they're Ford, F-O-R-D. Family, you know, are they married? Do they have kids? How old are their kids? Sure. Occupation, right? What do they do for a living? What's their title? How long they've been doing it? Recreation, right? What do they like to do with their free time? Fish, runner, you know, sports, whatever it might be. And then uh, dreams, what's on their bucket list? And when you, when you build systems in your personal life or in your professional life to focus on other people's forward. It gets it off you because, you know, we're all genetically coded to be, you know, about us. It's not a bad thing, but we can't be building relationships if it's about us. So, you know, we, we really focus, and, you know, even to the personal, when me and my three boys travel, we play the Ford game, which is who can find out the most personal information of a total stranger. Wow. So in my world, it's okay to talk to strangers as long as dad's there, right? <laughs> but, like, you know, it's hilarious because we'll be drilling the, the poor Uber driver you know, with a million questions yeah. peppering them. Yep. But it's also amazing to see someone light up when they're asked about them and where they came from and what it took to get here. And that's when the magic really happens. Ford, remember that. That's, uh, that's very useful, especially with what we do here at JMC Brands. That's, uh, that's a good bit of advice to take home. Um, before the interview, you were talking about an upcoming project that you have, and I have to ask about it. Um, you're going to be working with the country of Qatar to get them ready for the upcoming World Cup. How does one train an entire country when it comes to customer service? I've got to know about this. Yeah, um, and we've, we've already started, and their, their World Cup is in uh, 2022, which is uh, less than four years away. And uh, while that seems like a long time, as you said, training an entire country um, you know, that, that's, that's a big project. So it's that, it's that, you know, eating that elephant one bite at a time, starting 
with the first experience someone might have when they step off an airplane, security, immigration, airport, and making sure that they greet you no different than how you should be greeted by a concierge, um, not weakening the uh, security aspect, but to be friendly. When someone hands you a port passport, say, oh, you're coming in from the U.S., you know, how was your trip here? right, to uh, taxi cab drivers and Uber drivers, to all concierges and tour guides and all that. And it's really exciting. And, and, and Qatar wants to be known as, you know, the, the most amazing tourist experience any visitor can have, whether you're there for the, um, the FIFA World Cup in 2022 or you've just heard how great it was. And so they want to redefine the whole experience so they just don't benefit off this one, you know, spec, uh, you know uh, sporting event that is something that will garner them national world attention um, that people will start seeing it as a, a special place to go to. That's amazing. Yeah. If you could give an up-and-coming service team director one bit of advice and I would fall into that category, what would that be? About building a world-class customer service yes, organization? Yes, yeah, it, it's just, you know, be obsessed. Customer service is, is not something you do annually. Um, otherwise, it's like deodorant, right? And, and it wears off and the odor comes back. It has to be something that gets visited every day with your team and with yourself, from reading books to, you know, uh, talking about um, a day in the life of your client, right? Um, what are your clients going through before they even pick up the phone to speak to your team? What are their pains? What are they dealing with? You know, their potential. You know, they got their life at home. They got their kids. They got the aging parents. They got clients they're trying to assign. They're losing, retaining clients. Um, and then they got their, you know, obviously the things that you directly um, can make their life better. But when we, we, we look at them and a day in their life, before they even come in contact with us, it makes us more present instead of treating them as a 10.30 phone call, a 3 o'clock podcast, uh, 201 bed B as, as a hospital can look at someone, um, and as someone that, you know, uh, Greg, who is, you know, who's, who's raising a son and who's trying to, you know, make the business, get the business to another level. And not only does he need my presence, right, and to be in the moment, but he also needs my expertise, to help him, you know, get there. Absolutely. And so I think that really helps us um, when we think about our clients and, and what they're going through from their perspective, it really makes us have more compassion and empathy instead of looking at them as next, right? Makes a lot of sense. One last question for you. Um, you had mentioned that you were in the process of writing a new book. Yes. Can you give us a little intel on, on what that book will be about? Yeah. Uh, well, you've mentioned it a few times. It is called The Relationship Economy. There you go. And that's really what it is. It's just, you know, in, in the, the radical, there's nothing easier to copy today than technology. And, you know, in, in, in years past, if you came out with a good innovation, you, it might give you a, a competitive advantage for six to 18 months. Now, um, technology advances, you know, can be duplicated, replicated. I mean, it, 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 you know, any of uh, your listeners that uh, have uh, driven in Uber or Lyft, 
I can't tell the difference between the two apps. I mean, they are identical. Yep. And so anything anyone comes out with technology, while it's great, it could be mirrored within you know a, a very short amount of time. So the real disruptor is the ones that could build meaningful relationships and not treat people as a you know a, a, a next or account number or the things that we've all you know gotten um, you know the way we've been treated the past uh, 10, 15 years. That's outstanding. And when will that book be available? Uh, summer of 2019. All right, but in the meantime, you can pick up the customer service revolution. John, if people wanted to, to reach out to you and, and schedule an event or get a book or just learn more about what you offer, how, what's the best way for them to go about it? Uh, our, our website, thedejuliusgroup.com. Um, everything's on there, schedules and when we have events, um, videos, YouTube. Um, I, I, on the, uh, my YouTube channel, I probably have 150 two-minute videos of little vignettes that they could show their team. Um, on something so the day in the life of a customer is, is a video that yeah. uh, that I would definitely recommend check that one out well John thanks again for for stopping in Thank today you. it was an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you here today I know this was a, a very insightful episode for our listeners um, thanks to you guys for tuning in today we'll catch you again very soon to learn more follow us online at summitup.biz if you found value in this podcast please leave us a review see you next time